Hi, this is Paul Siegel, and you're listening to Wandering DMs. Wandering DMs is broadcast live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern on twitch.tv slash wanderingdms and youtube.com slash wanderingdms slash live. And now, on with the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Wandering DMs. I'm Paul. And I'm Dan. And on this episode of Wandering DMs, we're going to be talking about games within games. Does your game have a game inside it? Is that good for the inside game? Is it good for the outside game? Is it good for your players? Should you do that? Should you avoid it? (laughs) What a a complicated metagame this is going to be, Paul. Can you metagame the game within the game? Is that metagame gaming? (laughs) I, I hope so. If I, if I can't do that, what do I have, really? <laughs> excellent, excellent. So I think this came out of our um, discussion, discussion with uh, Epidai Ravishal uh, a couple of weeks ago, yep. um, who is the author of Dread. And, of course, Dread uses a, a, an alternate game for its primary mechanic, right? You have a, you're playing a horror role-playing game, and the primary re- mechanic for that is pulling blocks from a Jenga tower. Right, right, and that and that spoke to us, right? Because uh, hey, stealing bits of other games—that sounds like the original D and D to me. Really, that's, I think that's a really good observation. I, was, I mean, I wasn't coming up with that exact thesis, but I was like, it seems like that was a thing that happened more in the early years. That seems like a more common seventies, eighties type thing, and it seems like. If, if I didn't, you know, maybe our discussion with Jeff Grubb last week is on my mind, but with the rise of universal mechanics, um, 80s, 90s, maybe that doesn't happen so much because you presumably have a universal mechanic that takes care of anything. And mm. therefore, maybe people don't feel that they need to uh, make unique mechanics for every different situation anymore. Hmm. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, if you think of. Yeah. The history of the game, right? Like where it right. originated from and, and the right. evolution over time as it got more yeah. energy and more, um, yeah. not just energy, but like, you know, marketing and, and and dollars behind it, right? As it got more developed, it seems like, I guess, a fairly obvious arc for it to go through, I guess. I don't know. I guess? Yeah. Because I, I, keep should, thinking, okay. I keep thinking of those all those stories of the very early days of D anD D, right? Where Gygax right. is posting, you know, to um, uh, to the backs of magazines to say, like, I'm interested right. in collaborating with people, and right. they're in the war game scene, right? Where there's a lot of kit bashing going on, and they're just, you know, oh, I want to play this. Well, look, if I take this piece from here and that piece from there and combine them in this way, and you know, oh, let's steal this mechanic, and now now we've made a new custom game that we'll play once at a convention and move on and do it again. Right, right, right. It That's seems natural then, and maybe even you know you might say that um, under sort of the modern eye, if you looked at it and thought, okay, you know you're you're experimenting, you're kind of indie, you're pulling bits from different places, and now you're going to publish your own thing. Then maybe that's right. the point where you want to step back and go. Mm, is it okay to include other people's work in my work right. that I'm selling? Right, right. So let me take a step back and throw, maybe for viewers that aren't that as as intimately familiar with this this trend as, as Paul and I am, let me just throw out some examples hmm. and of what we're thinking about, and then I'll probably add more examples throughout the hour because I have a giant stack of books over here to my left. Great. Um, 
So, uh, you know, and there's a couple of different cases here, right? So I think right at the moment, we're thinking about explicit call-outs to other products. And that's not the entirety of the story, but that's a major yeah. part of the story. So let's say you get original D&D, right? Mm -hmm. And you, you start flipping through the first volume here and you get to require recommended equipment, recommended equipment, and uh, you need paper, you need pencils. And there's actually two shout outs to other products. But, uh, the, one of them is the prior game by Gygax Chainmail. Uh, you need to have this uh, for a number of things. So uh, at least to begin with, it asserts that the core combat comes from Chainmail. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and you think that you need that for missile ranges and stuff like that. And you don't get any initiative rules in D and D. Like you have to, you have to go I mean, here for this. You you need it for pure combat, right? Because the the combat system mm -hmm. that we're all used to with the D twenties is listed as an alternative in the book. <clears throat> That's what it says. That's what it says officially. <laughs> um, and the the monster listing specifically says uh, all of everything we have in this book is in addition to chainmail. So everything that's written in chainmail applies to our monsters mm -hmm. unless this book specifically says otherwise. Now, so that's kind of maybe that's kind of obvious that of course it said chainmail. But the other thing that, that Paul and I love is that even before that, it says that you need to have a copy of Outdoor Survival, the uh, the Avalon Hill outdoor survival game with a big beautiful map written yep. by Jim Dunnigan, a uh, epic game designer who founded SSI and stuff like that. And you need this specifically if you're going to run wilderness adventures, you need this map and you need this rules in order to do the wilderness adventures that are specified in original D&D. So specific in this case specific callouts to other products sometimes from other companies. Yep. Um, what a fascinating I mean when I when I picked up original D&D late in my life, I was like just really astonished at that and personally kind of excited that now I'm on a track about discovering other games. It's interesting and it feels like a very indie thing to do, right? Like I'm it reminds me of in the 90s I used to buy a bunch of board games by a company called Cheap Ass Games. And these right. would typically right, right. come in like a Ziploc bag, and they clearly looked like they were printed out on someone's printer at home. And they, they, they kind of owned it, and they pushed this in their marketing. And they were like, you already right. own dice and pawns and, you know, all this stuff that's, like, you have 20 games with this stuff already. You don't need us to sell that to you again. So all their games would come with that of, like, here's the list of the other parts from other board games that you have to go and gotcha. collect to use this game. But, no, but you can kind of see through it a little bit, right? You can kind of see through that a little right. bit of like, well, you, right, right. you don't have the manufacturing process to provide those yeah. either. So right, right, <laughs> right, right, yeah. right. Um, so, so William has a good point of, of, of like the counter to my seeing that and being excited. And I think this is probably going to be the theme to the day is if maybe if you're buying a game, you want it to be exclusive. You want everything in the box to actually start, start playing it, as William says. If I'm buying your game, I want it to be inclusive. So, you know, am I crazy to be excited that I get to go explore another game? Or should I be irritated that the game is incomplete? Yeah. Uh, that's, that seems to be the two sides of the coin when you're including another, another game by reference. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. I could see that for sure. I know this is a bit of a tangent, but I'm yeah. immediately thinking yeah. of the era of box of basic box set that came with chits. 
right? And yeah. sort of like, right. uh, you know, here's right. your game. Sorry, no dice. <laughs> That's what I started with. Yeah. That's totally yeah. what I started with. Yeah. Um, exactly, exactly. And now, and and the other the other point that William is making in the chat, I don't know if you need to bring it up, is is he's asking, um, was the assumption that if anyone playing original D and D just presumably already had outdoor survival, outdoor survival, right? Um, and I think that's a really interesting question, honestly. I mean, pro I mean, clearly for Gygax and friends, they clearly had that in the house. Yeah. Did they think about that? Did they think about, like, just our friends happen to have it, therefore we can use it? Did they think about the additional level of difficulty uh, in, in if someone doesn't have it? See, I would I would think so. I, I, I mean, the argument that I've always heard, right, is that D&D, that when they developed D&D, &D, they weren't really expecting it to be this massive breakout, you know, mainstream success, right? Mm -hmm. That they were targeting... Yeah these inner circles of people who were already playing a bunch of different games, you know, board right. games and war games and et cetera. I mean, heck, Gygax was advertising in the back of Avalon Hill's newsletter, right, to yeah. look for collaborators. Yeah. That's, you know, allegedly, yeah. I think, how he got in touch with Arneson, right? Yeah. Yes, I believe so, so. Yeah. So yeah, of course they. Of course you're going to have all of Avalon Hill's latest. You've, you're reading their freaking newsletter, right? Right, <laughs> right, right, right. right. Let me pitch. Let me pitch yeah. a couple of examples. Uh, and so I think, I mean, possibly the most interesting ones are original D and D needing outdoor survival, and Dread needing Jenga, which is clearly a completely different company's product. Then you have some situations like, uh, let me see here. So here is the um, the Dave Cooks, David Zeb Cooks. Uh, expert D and D set from what it was in 1982 or something like that, which which of course is the sub the the uh, companion to the Tom Moldvay basic set, and you go in here to the encounter section, and they have just just a paragraph each on here's how you would do uh, naval combat. Here it is here. Here's how you do aerial combat, and then down here, kind of at the bottom of the page here, it says if you want to do mass combat, you should go pick up swords and spells. Right. Right. Well, that's you, just that's just that just sounds to me like good cross promotion, right? Like that's uh... well, the interesting possible dilemma is someone might point at that and say, "Hey, those are different editions of D and D, right?" Okay. Now, at the time, I think many of us, like you, me, and pretty much many many people of a particular age who come on the show, all say, "Well, at the time, we did a big mashup between a basic D and D set and advanced D and D, and we did we didn't make any cognizant." separation between the editions. Right. I think maybe maybe people nowadays are a little bit more sensitive to that. Technically, Swords and Spells is for original D&D. A lot of people would think, wait, those are totally different editions, but they're sufficiently compatible enough that that seemed, that seemed reasonable. I'll just throw out one more thing. Here is, thank you, Jeff Grubb, here's the original <laughs> Marvel superhero game that, uh, that Jeff Grubb wrote. Mm -hmm. And you get sections, again, on different environments and underwater and outer space and stuff like this. And so here's the section on outer space and it comes down here and there's a little footnote of like, well, if you want to do space combat, you should pick up TSR Star Frontiers game, hmm. the Star Frontiers Nighthawks game, and you should use that for spaceship combat in Marvel superheroes. Um, so there's a call out to entirely different game, but from the same company. Mm -hmm. Is that now, is that fair game? Was that, was that pure, was that synthetic to what we're trying to do here or was that crass product promotion? Hmm. Hmm. 
I uh, so those two examples to me shout out to this this notion of it sort of being a problem endemic of role playing games specifically, right? The, the the sort of premise we have in role playing games is that you can do anything, right? The, the, right. The, it's open right. world, and you can do anything that that you can imagine. And of course, the right. the push and pull of that is. Well, but how, right? Like, what are, if I want to engage in this activity and it's not covered in the rules, how do we adjudicate that? And and it just makes sense to me, I guess, logically, that you couldn't possibly foresee all the things and put them all in a book. Ergo, you're going to have to go out and sort of farm stuff, farm ideas from other games. Right. It seems natural to me. It seems natural to me. Yeah. Um, so, like, for example, so the, so... Of, you know, I want to I want to jump here a little bit to our other games within games topic, right? Which right, is right. just sort of like mini games that are built into your game. Mm-hmm. And the big one in OD and D that jumps out to me there is jousting, right? Right. Which is, I, I think the rules are in chainmail, right? The rules are the Correct. jousting rules yeah. are in chainmail. Correct. Um, and you've you've used this. I've played in a game uh, where you were running Dan on the outdoor survival board, and we meet a knight, and he challenges us to a joust, and then okay, get out the jousting matrix, and let's do right. a joust. Right, right. Um, and then famously, of course, there's uh, if you go to Gary Khan, uh, or when yeah. when it's when it's uh, open to the world again, <laughs> um, that they run a, a, a weekend long tournament of jousting mm-hmm. there. Right. And the final, of course, the final round is whoever has gotten through the tournament plays Luke Gygax for the final round. And Luke usually wins, uh, if I recall, uh, from year to year. <laughs> and of course, that's, and that's not just some kind of made up thing. Like that's actually a core way in the original D&D wilderness rules that if you run into a fighter led castle, that is the fundamental way that they interact with you is they're going to go and say, demand a joust with prizes to whoever wins. Right. Now, and it's funny because when I first saw that, I, again, I got excited about like, oh, to my mind, this is expanding the world mm-hmm. with additional interesting mechanics. And if I know about the jousting rules, oh, this is great. I get to use the jousting rules in my D&D game. Um, as, as you know, I've actually stopped doing that because the problem that I ran into is that my players didn't know about that matrix they really did. If I just sprang it on them in an encounter when they where they didn't expect, they had no idea to know what strategy was good or bad on this matrix. And I would always, you know, just clean their clocks as the DM due to just having, you know, advanced knowledge and preparation of this new game that was getting sprung on them. Awesome. So, um, so I, I think there's there's a more modern example of this that I think I've seen come up time and time again in a variety of role playing games. Right. Uh, it's come up in Ten Dead Rats. It's come up, uh, I, I think, in probably any fantasy role playing game I've ever played, right. which is gambling. Right? If you're playing yep, yep, yep. A, a, a fantasy game, is fairly common trope. You come into the tavern. There's some gambling going on. Some players yep. decided this suits my character. I want to gamble. Yep. What do you yeah. do at that point, right? Do we stop and actually play around a blackjack? Do we roll dice on your yeah. gambling skill? Something mm-hmm. in between, mm-hmm. right? How do you make yeah. some evocative experience that feels like there that gambling is a thing that exists in your D and D world, yeah. you know, um, and 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 make it feel like gambling? I guess make it feel like. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> did like Did you know that the the first the the AD and D first edition DM's guide has a whole appendix? <laughs> has a whole appendix just for this issue. If you look at the back of the DM's guide in first edition, appendix F is just on what Paul just said on gambling. 
And among the options on this page are craps, which is literally just play craps. It's just the rules for cra- for actual craps on this page. Do That's that. Great. That's great. Um, and then there's there's horse knuckle bones, uh, a, a dice based slots, dice racing, also some card games here. Okay. And then in a couple cases, in a couple cases, a little bit of a mechanic in case someone's a skilled gambler or cheating at it. Then you swap in a die that's yeah. been slightly modified See, to represent that. That that I find to be the most fascinating. And and um, this comes up um, this comes up in Warhammer a lot. Uh, where you know you often have these very evocative skills. Your character has these evocative skills, um, and you have these evocative careers. Like maybe you are a charlatan, or maybe you are a you know charcoal burner, or whatever, something weird and crazy. And so they have kind of somewhat humorous, but very thematically um, appropriate skills in the skill lists for most versions of Warhammer that are things like consume alcohol or gambling, right? Right. right. And so a player right. may come in there and say like, well. My character is a charlatan who's really good at gambling. So, yes, I want to engage in this in the game. Yep. But also, yep, yep. I should have an edge because my character stats mm-hmm. say so. <clears throat> yep. Agreed. And that's really fascinating. Agreed. I think the best use of this or the best um, response to this that I've seen is there is a an old uh, podcast of the Enemy Within campaign, which is the same campaign we're playing on 10 Dead Rats right now. But there is an audio-only podcast on it, which I think, I'm going to look it up real quick here, uh, is at warhammer-enemy-within.blogspot.com. You can go and listen to that podcast. Uh, So the interesting thing about that podcast is uh, the DM, Tim, has a, uh, I think, a, a, a... a PayPal, you can send him some money via PayPal, and he will send you all his notes from the campaign. And he's got this very nice little bundle, so like, you know, if you're really into The Enemy Within, as I am, um, and you, you want to listen to the podcast and follow along with his notes about what was going on, uh, that's there. And one of the things in his notes is a, like a four or five page thing of, here are the gambling rules that I was using. And he wrote a whole section of the different kinds of games you could play and uh, how gambling skill impacts them. And it really ranged, right? The nice thing about this is, and and I've cribbed some of the stuff from his his rules here, because usually he tried to boil it down, right? Like, you don't really Mm want to sit down and play many rounds of blackjack for reals, right? Like, that's going to slow your game down. But he wants right. it. He wanted to evoke that feel. So, like a lot of things he did were things like, okay, if you're playing a card game that involves betting, it's broken down into two phases. There's like the initial bet, and then there's a choose whether or not you're going to raise or hold or stay, and then there's a resolution. It's really good stuff. I I, I recommend checking it out if you if you can. Um, <clears throat> so you're talking but, about like actually using actual cards, but in a in a minimum in a in a, in a no. No, he doesn't use actual cards, but he, he presents okay. it as a card game, right? And he, he presents it in different ways. There's dice games, there's card games, okay. you know, you can you okay. can uh, throw darts, you can have a drinking contest, you can okay. do arm wrestling, right? All this stuff. All these okay. things that you might do in a tavern uh, where money right. might be bet. And then usually he boils it down to a couple different dice rolling mechanics. And, like, this is, you know, maybe you're going to roll your gambling skill or maybe you're just rolling random dice and comparing them and et cetera. But he's, he's added a couple layers of complexity, so it's not just like, roll, okay, you know, I've done this, right? Where you they say, okay, you spend the night gambling, roll your gambling skill. Uh, okay, you, you know, I succeeded. Great, you have a good night and you make, you know, 50 gold. Right? right. Like that's, 
if anything, I feel like that's often a little bit of a letdown, right? Like, okay, gambling is in your world, but only in the most abstract way possible. Right. 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 I agree. You you almost want like com the, the the combat version of gambling, right? You want the I agree. I want a kind of a little bit of a play by play, but I don't want to play yeah every round of game right i want to know oh i I did well in a couple of games oh and then i lost big and then i had to i owed this person money and now i need to try to like go back and see if someone will stake me or i'll say this this very issue of a a tavern or uh you know arena or something like that or a a festival day with archery and arm wrestling has taken an enormous amount of mind share for me over the years and I've, I mean, I've, I've thought about that for some reason, this really, this whole games within games, like really, really tickles me um, on exactly that kind of thing. And so back in the third edition era, I had a, a very small writing credit on a product called Tournaments, Fairs and Taverns uh, from uh, Ian Publishing. And I can't even remember what, what, frankly, at this point, I can't even remember what part I wrote, but it might have <laughs> been the archery part or something like that. Interesting. And uh, it, it is interesting that as we as we shift historically from every single mechanic is totally unique and totally customized to that one thing to the idea of a universal mechanic where we have maybe a finite list of skills in D&D or something like that. Um, my primary stab at that kind of thing was, again, I don't like just one single role telling the tale, was how long do most combats last is what I'm thinking, like three, four, five rounds off frequently. Mm-hmm. And so my initial stab was like a lot of those things should be a, like a best out of three. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So so arm wrestling or playing cards is both both sides will have like maybe three rounds, maybe five rounds uh, go back and forth. And you'll have a little bit of rising tension as you see who's who gets the initial lead and whether the other person can come back or not. And it also brings the probabilities a little bit more in line that the person with the higher skill is uh, has a greater chance of actually winning the overall event rather than one single bad roll, meaning that you've lost to a, to a novice player or something like that. Right, right. But you want, you know, I, I feel like I want space for these stories that are kind of classic yeah. stories that we see in fiction and movies yeah. and whatnot, where like perhaps someone is a hustler, right? And so they're very skilled, yep, yep. but they're going to intentionally mm-hmm. lose up front to draw you in and get you to bet big. Okay, right? nice, <laughs> right? Nice. <laughs> so you nice. want, you know, and in fact, I'll even say the enemy within, uh, in the in the initial, the very beginning of that campaign, there is totally an NPC that does exactly that, that is portrayed that way, okay. right? He's a professional okay. gambler, but okay. he's but he downplays it and he's going to try and, and try and, uh, you know, take you. And he also will cheat. Right, and he'll also cheat. So, how do we model that? Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, that's hard to do. I mean, on the one hand, I kind of want like you're playing cards. I kind of want like physical cards a little bit. And again, that's what it says in the first edition appendix there. But then that all of a sudden, the the whole how do you cheat and how do you represent higher skill level becomes an enormous problem. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I almost like I don't want to sit down and actually play cards, but I do like when mechanics are evocative of the setting. Um, this was actually, uh, you know, to go back to our earlier other example of just cribbing elements from other games, um, right. I'm reminded of how uh, the original Deadlands and possibly later editions of Deadlands, which is a, you know, a Wild West setting, but there's also supernatural elements and magic and whatnot, that the right. magic casting system actually uses a deck of cards and you have to form poker hands. So your your huckster characters are gamblers and they mm-hmm. know a little magic 
and right. and so in order for them to cast spells, they have to draw poker hands, which is which is hilarious, right? Like it feels yeah. evocative of the setting yeah, I without. Agree. You know, I agree. Yeah, the, the deadlines mechanic really did always make me happy. The couple times I played it, I agree. yeah, yeah. You I know like the, the thing. You know I played played a little bit of poker in my life, a very small amount. Um, the game that I was most focused on before I discovered D&D was chess. I, I, I was brought up in a household where I was being taught to, to play chess pretty heavily at one point. Um, and that takes a lot. There's a lot of uh, mental energy that Gygax spends on the same thing. You know, um, mm. I think in Dragon Magazine number 100, I believe, Gygax had a uh, system for an alternative chess game that had three levels like Underworld normal world and the the heavens or something right, like that right um and in his uh not set at his gord the rogue novels um the the ultimately in the culminating novel there's a point where the fate of the universe is determined by the main hero playing a game of chess with the universal gonna destroy the universe bad guy mm-hmm. and so 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 Part of me also wants this, like, actually have, like, chess pieces in your hands to simulate this kind of thing. Right. But then right. the whole, skill, you know, character skill level, you know, maybe that's good. I mean, maybe your character, again, maybe early on uh, in D&D, maybe your character's chess playing skill was just whatever the player's chess playing skill was. And that would be a player-based challenge. And maybe that was acceptable at one point. Nowadays, a lot of people would would immediately go berserk over the, the and could probably call that metagamey or something well, like that. The metagamey aspect of it aside, yeah. I think there's a major pacing problem here, right? I think earlier yes. in the chat, someone right. brought up um, right. that it's like domain management is a case, right? Right. And yes, right. for sure, domain management. There's a whole like mini game around building your castle and maintaining it, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Oh. And and, and you, you've explored this as well, right? And yeah. I feel yeah. like the, the major problem, like as interesting as it is to say, yes, we can add these elements to our game and we are going to model them in some unique novel way. And that is exciting. The downside is that maybe it breaks the immersion of the game itself. Uh, maybe it focuses all the yes. attention on one player yeah. for too long and then everyone's getting bored. Yeah, right. Totally. Totally. Yeah. And as, as a young person, I would probably, I've probably made that mistake a couple times, probably. Uh, it's an, I think it's an easy mistake. For, at least for me to make to get excited about some kind of new subsystem or some kind of new you know adjunct system and then overlook that exact fact of everybody else is basically not participating all of a sudden right 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 that, i guess that's yeah. why i want to lean towards these sort of abstraction layers that basically boil the activity down just like we boil down combat yeah i agree i i came <laughs> i came to the same i came to the same the same conclusion now you know uh, you know it's interesting the deadlands uh example is interesting because it at least you know, echoes the the flavor of the thing that you're sort of simulating. So maybe yeah. it would be interesting if there was some, was some way of like making a minimal, like a minimal poker, you know, echo. And uh, I, I have a good friend actually who spent some time, you know, to understand strategy probability, making minimal minimized poker games, whereby maybe if just one person just draws one card, you just draw one card and you start betting on that, mm-hmm. right? Um, and you have a round of baiting based on just who who has a higher single card. Um, See, I think, and maybe you could make up some kind of mini mini game based on that. I think the, the interesting thing about poker is the incredibly obscure and arcane feeling, uh, uh, you know, 
point system is that what i want to call it resolution system right which hands better than the next right it's 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 complex sure. and yep, a little sure. unusual right sure. um i know that like in deadlands the way it works right is that to cast a spell you have to form a poker hand and you draw cards based right. on your skill so you if you're super right. skilled huckster you're going to draw you know 10 15 cards and then just right. assemble the best five into a poker hand that you can and say that's how powerful mm -hmm. my spell is uh, I, I, I guess you could you could adapt that to gambling as well, right? Like roll your gambling skill on your character sheet. That indicates how many cards you get to draw. Now show me the best poker hand oh. you're able to assemble. Okay, okay, nice. Yeah, nice, like nice. That. I like that. Cuff. Actually, that's, I like that. That's not yeah. bad. I like that yeah. a lot. Yeah, I like yeah. I like the, the the evocativeness of bringing the cards in and feeling like it's yeah. there. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I guess I also want then some element, especially because of a social game like poker. Mm -hmm. I want some element of of bluffing and and yep. you know betting and and yep, you know yep. yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Without getting too without too getting too heavyweight, but right. you know, I, there's a lot of there's like a you know there's a lot of mind share around the the deck of many things magic item right the very very powerful you know card based. And I think one of the most interesting things is in first edition, it was like, go get an actual deck of cards. Mm -hmm. And the Jack of Hearts represents this, and the Three of Hearts represents this other thing. And you have to have an actual deck of cards and have the players actually draw them, and it's very concrete and it's very evocative. Nowadays, of course, I mean, for years, people have made actual real um, you know, card decks specific to the deck of... You know, it's kind of an obvious new product to have. Yep. But uh, ever since I first saw that, I was like, oh, I get to go get an... And of course, you know, cards are a pretty common thing that most people or many people are going to have in their house. Mm -hmm. And so it's pretty pretty fun for me to go run to the closet and go, oh, I get to use this new product in my D&D game. And I think that's part of the, one of the reasons why that, that, that particular magic item is so memorable to people specifically for mm -hmm. that. Yeah, I guess you know to go back to our original example that the whole Jenga tower in Dread is is that yeah. evocative, right? Like you're not we're not really playing Jenga, right? We're we're using this mechanic to f add tension to the game, right? Mm -hmm. Right, and then and and yeah. there's some recognition there that when we play Jenga, there is a, a physical tension of yeah. you know, am I going to knock the tower down or not? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I genuinely I, like that stuff. I don't know. That's that's. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I would. I, I guess I have to. I, if if I, I'm going to kick myself if we have this discussion, I don't point out um, Richard Garfield, uh, the creator of Magic: The Gatherings. Uh, really, to me, really super influential essay that he wrote at one point on um, randomization in games, and in particular how experts at most games want to reduce randomization so that they win more often, whereas in order for your game to be um, open and inviting to new players, you ought to have a relatively high level of randomization so that they have a better chance hmm. of possibly winning. And the primary example that Garfield has there is, let's imagine a game in which two players roll a die, roll a d6, and whoever rolls highest wins. Hmm. Except that ties are broken by a game of chess. <laughs> And his and his, and his thought his thought process is like every strategy for chess is applicable to this game. Uh, every single book about chess openings is appropriate and useful to the players mm -hmm, of this mm -hmm, game. Mm -hmm. Every piece of training that anybody ever had in actual chess is 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 also appropriate to this game. But a novice chess player has a much better chance of winning this game 
than they do at normal chess. So, uh, so, so I, I'm, that's always on my mind of this game that has chess as a mini game, or I suppose I think there are some leagues that do like combined chess boxing, right? Where you do, you do like ten minutes of chess, and then you do a route, you do you do a minute of boxing, and you come back <laughs> and stuff like that. I think I think there's some stuff. I think you can probably find some examples of that on YouTube. I think, and I'm that's like, wild. there was a point where I was like, that would be the perfect game. Wouldn't that be the perfect game, Paul? <laughs> Chess boxing? Who no. wouldn't want to do no. that? No. No, thank you. Really? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> it's, uh, it's... <laughs> I, I, I mean, I'm half, half inclined to think of, like, you know, have you ever been to, like, a, a, a Ren fair and people do, like a, like, a live chess game, right? Where there's, you know, big, giant, yeah. you know, giant chessboard painted oh, on the ground and okay. people come up and then... Okay. You know, and then the, usually the the gag right is that they they mime or they 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 stage fight right. Whenever a piece takes another piece, they stage fight. Oh, right? okay. That's that's okay. the that's well, the gimmick. No, never seen that. Uh, I haven't. I haven't. Well, of course, my, the, the what immediately jumps to my mind is like, well, what if it wasn't stage fighting? What if you know the, the outcome wasn't preordained, <laughs> right? Just because you're a knight and this guy's yes. a pawn and it was your move, like yes. maybe the pawn gets in a good yes. shot and and takes you out yes. anyway. So yes. now, of course, now I want to see chess boxing where everyone's boxing, right? <laughs> you have logic people and when one piece jumps another they box and whoever wins the boxing match actually takes the square nice. that's great <laughs> <laughs> i like that a lot <laughs> i like that a lot i think i feel like there's like been some video games years and years ago based on you know computer games based on that same kind of idea and i'm not talking battle chess which was just merely animated uh but uh, there was some kind of like iteration where like the, the combat was actually important to the to yeah. the overall gameplay right yeah yeah, yeah then it's interesting of like well i have a bishop which is pretty strong but it's low on hit points because right. it's done a lot right. of fights so far right yeah right so that's interesting right all right, so 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 games within games, right? Like so, right. Uh, <laughs> we kind of gone down. A I mean, crazy I'm excited about it. I, I see that, yeah. and I go, I get to explore more. Here's a new piece of the game that I didn't know. I get to find out more about this game. I get to find out more about another game, a game that I already know. I get to bring into this game and you know, and and you know share it. And so personally, I at the you know in the day was was always really excited about that. But uh, there's some downsides, right? It's not all it's not all pro. <laughs> My my experience is that more often than not it falls flat. More often than mm -hmm. not, it's not yeah. received well and it's not super yeah. fun and you would have been better off just roll a skill check and move on. Yeah. Or at least or maybe a skill series or whatever they've called it in recent D and D editions. Like maybe yeah. again I, for me like a like a like a best of three competition or best of five competition would work pretty well, I think. But not not any longer than that. I agree. I, longer than that tends to turn into trouble. I don't know. I I am not a fan of those like extend the dice check out into multiple dice checks unless the point is for okay. then the the outcomes to be more than just a binary win fail, right? If the outcomes are like okay, because you won all three, it's a massive success. Whereas if there was some back and forth, now I'm going to narrate more, hmm. you know, impact on the story of how it. Happened. Interesting. I mean, otherwise, like roll. Th I don't know if I'm just going to roll the same check three times, and I and it's best two out of three. It's like a, I don't know that that doesn't grab me. I, I'm like, let's just roll a check. Really? Why, why why bother with two or three? Uh, let me let me argue that just a bit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It raises tension. Um, you get a little bit of information about how this is how the outcome is going to turn out, but in the midstream, you don't know. So I feel like the 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 tension midstream is the is the game 
uh, of experiencing that moment of time when you have a little bit of information, but you don't know exactly how it's going to come out. The, the dramatic twists, like if some one person wins the first one and someone comes from behind is an emotionally exciting moment. Um, uh, so I would, I would, uh, for, for me, the, the actual progression itself is, is the thing of interest to me. I think I can, I can see where you're coming from in theory, Yeah. but I've never yeah. seen it in practice. Really? Yeah. I no. can't say that okay. I've ever experienced that. Like, Oh, this is exciting and interesting. You won one and I won mm-hmm. one. Let's see what happens the third time around. Mm-hmm. Like usually it just feels a little rote to me of like, let's just, let's move on. <laughs> right. All he's done is make it slower in my opinion. Interesting. How do you, I mean, there are, I mean, but, but you, I think that uh, I, I assume that you don't feel the same way about like standardish D and D combat right. going for multiple rounds. I don't think you'd want to just right. Again, turn D and D combat into a single role. Right. Because, because the outcome of each step yeah. impacts the narrative, right? That the story yeah. of what's happening, um, you know, is changed that we, that each, each success and each failure were, were evolving the, the setting or, or adding flavor or what have you. Again, and that's, that's the case that what I just said, right. Of like, that's, that's when I would right. enjoy a best two out of three role is where, you know, either, either at the end based on the sum total result or, or step by step throughout it, that the DM or somebody is injecting, you know, narrative of here's what that role means has happened. Yeah, uh, interesting, interesting. I mean, I mean, for me, anyway. I think I made. I think I made my case. What if you know your friends are reaching for their weapons because you lost the first one, right? What if, what if you, what if the the the, the it, it looks like you're on the cusp of something very, very bad and comes back, or Joshua's point of maybe you have skill points or some kind of resources that you can apply to make sure that you win, that you get the next yeah. roll. Yeah. I mean, any, um, any of these additional yeah. complexities is fine, but if it's literally yeah. just, we're going to roll the dice three times and the best two out of three wins, I think that's dull. Interesting. Interesting. going to, going to, going to politely disagree with that one, okay. but you okay. know, I don't have a whole lot of data on that. Frankly, yeah. I don't have a yeah. whole lot of data on that. That's, you know, I've done that a couple times and it's, it's mostly theory on my end. So I could be wrong. Yeah. Oh, John uh, Miller brings up uh, chases, which I think is a really interesting. Okay, great, great. great. Um, I, I see that uh, right. Asking, does anyone use best of three for chases? Uh, and I'm immediately reminded of of Savage Worlds chase mechanic, where there's actually a whole okay. mini game around it. Right. We we low okay. out lay okay. out steps across the board, like yep. with markers, and we put miniatures on the board, and we we you make checks and now now you're closer to here and now you're further away from there i love that stuff i've done that a lot in savage worlds games especially pulp games where you want like exciting car chase scenes and stuff like that um again i I feel like in that case that the point of the mini game is to be evocative of the thing happening in the world Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and to give you more opportunity to inject shifts in the narrative of of, of what's going on in the in the scene because of interesting uh, results in the in the mechanics of the minigame. Um, but I don't know. Again, it's it's one of those things that like tickles me almost more in theory than in practice. That that if you get bogged down, I guess this is true of even just combat, right? If it gets bogged down and people because they're less likely to know the details of how it works and mm-hmm. it slows the pacing of the whole game. Right. Yeah. Then it then it loses its charm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I I mean, call me correct me if I'm crazy, but I think that my top game design, you know, dogma is pacing. 
right? Mm -hmm. I feel like the, the ultimately the pacing is pretty much the most important thing for me in running a game. Um, am I consistent about that, Paul, or do I say a bunch of other stuff is the, is the most important thing for me? Is that? <laughs> I don't know. I've not, not been tracking it. <laughs> yeah, so how, how do you feel about that thesis, that, that pacing oh, no, is the most important thing? 100% in agreement. Right. I mean, I've okay. always said that about horror gaming, for sure. That, yeah. like, like right. everything, like, horror game in horror games, to me, pacing is, like, 12 steps mm -hmm. above importance of everything else. Uh, is that true in role-playing in general? Yeah, I could see it. I could be convinced of that. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think that's my certainly as as a most as someone who mostly runs D and D. That's always my primary. That's that's my 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 primary goal. Frankly, is 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 good, pretty fast pacing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting with the chase rules because, of course, I'm thinking about you know um, early D and D tended to have big sections on that same thing, and original D and D has the section on evasion here, mm -hmm. which uh, a number of us actually on my blog. Um, and also the the ODD forums like have quite a bit of time trouble interpreting as a matter of fact. So I would like to use this and it's non-trivial as some of the people in the chat have been on my blog talking about that actually. It's not entirely trivial to interpret that. First edition DM's guide has at least five or six pages, I think, about uh, chase rules and it was a common it was a common thing to have fairly elaborate mechanics for. Um, and that brings the whole, you know, extra issue about like, what about the whole issue of like sub mechanics generally, um, mm. you know, original D and D has a whole subsystem for naval combat. It has a whole subsystem for aerial combat that could be played as its own game. And some people do at Gary Khan, as a matter of fact, um, I'm, I'm pretty sure everybody agrees. Those sections were written by Dave Arneson. Um, and do, are those are those you know useful? Uh, you know, doesn't does an elaborate subsystem count itself as a mini game? And is that useful, or has that become too complicated that players need to learn this entire new subsystem in order to participate with it? Um, does does just a, does, does, does just a particular subsystem count as a mini game? Maybe hmm. yes, arguably. I'm I'm reminded of. Um... Uh, listening to Critical Role not so long ago, um, some, at some point in season two, the the group had a boat. So they're on a they're on a ship. It's uh, they've right. got they've got uh, gunpowder weapons in their setting. So so they're on a, a ship with weaponry. Uh, another right. ship is closing in on them. It looks like we're going to have like a big you know combat, big naval combat right. scene happen. And right. um, one of the players cast some spell i can't remember what the spell is but some spell that basically creates a tidal wave right and it's it's just one of those things where like oh we all thought we were about to have this interesting naval engagement and here's a spell that just nope <laughs> just giant tidal gotcha. wave pushes the boat away gotcha. smashes against gotcha. the rocks yes yeah. next gotcha. right and gotcha. uh it, interestingly in that episode matt mercer then is like ah, i had these rules right i had this whole system ready yep. for how yep. we're yep. gonna play yep. the naval yep. combat and yep. i guess yep. we don't need that and, and he, was, he was very jovial about it, right? He was like, oh, it seemed like it would yeah. be fun, but, but yeah. you know, the story went a different direction, and that's fine, because that's D&D, &D, and that's how D&D &D plays out, so whatever. Um, and there was a little bit of, you know, banter over that, of like, oh, we didn't get to play the interesting little mini game, but oh, well, right. And as a listener, I was like, I'm relieved, frankly, because I don't know the rules to that mini game, and do I want to listen to you guys play this weird mini game whose rules I don't yeah. even know? Okay. Okay. Eh, uh, okay. Yeah, dashed on the rocks. Fine, move on. 
Yep. Okay. Interesting. Uh, a point to Mercer. That is that's 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 high level DM behavior that you're willing to throw out a large amount of preparation to honor uh, the the player's success and cleverness. Yeah. That's totally yeah. what you ought to do. It can be yeah. it can okay. be hard, but better that than railroading into into your subsystem. And the chat, some of us are talking about uh, you know grappling, <laughs> of course, <laughs> grappling as a whole mini game and uh. weather systems. Um, and, th and things of that nature. Yep, um, yep, yep. you know, even, even like miniature war games, right? Like a lot, you know, a lot of miniature war games are like, here's the rules. You got to go get some miniatures yeah. <laughs> or we assume you already had that and they don't come, they don't come together. Um, so that's a case of, uh, you know, people, I mean, people I mean, nodding to another company or something like that. Isn't the story that all of like D and D dungeon delving originated from the mini right. game for sapping in a siege right. warfare right. <laughs> scenario right. of a right. war game. Right. And that's common in a lot of war games too. There's a common yeah. I mean we, we get we totally have that in our role playing game systems. I'm I'm glad you I'm glad you brought my 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 mind to that actually because there's a lot of war games that have multiple levels of action, right? Mm. Uh for me, uh you know, the first war game I ever played was Bismarck. Well, you have the strategic exploration map of trying to track down and find where the Bismarck is. And when you actually find it, you switch to a completely different table where you you play out the minute by minute gun battle trying to actually you know shoot it down and that looks a lot like playing with outdoor survival yeah. you're you have the you have a large scale exploration hopefully you find a monster lair or an interesting castle to loot and then you switch to the dungeon based um uh, system where you actually try to loot it i think it's john peterson at playing the world identifies like three different you know scales or three different modes of playing DD. there's the meta prepare for an exploration game, if I think I recall. There's the exploration of the dungeon of trying to map it and find out what's interesting. And then there's the actual encounter of, you know, actually fighting a monster or something like that with three different levels. Of course, Star Frontiers has the, your, you know, you have, you have big level spaceship fighting written by Doug Niles. And then maybe there's a boarding action. Then you switch to man-to-man, uh, -man, uh, you know, laser blaster fighting. Um, and so there's a lot of our a lot of traditions from war game where maybe you switch scales like that hmm. that it seems very natural in our role playing games. Hmm. Hmm. I like so that. Is that is that complicated? <laughs> is that overly complicated for some people now? I've I always I always felt that was natural and interesting to have this changing of scales. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean I like the idea of having different ways of modeling action. Mm -hmm. And for mm -hmm. me, the, the, the push and pull of it is how much does it disrupt the flow of the game to introduce mm -hmm. a thing that maybe the players have no concept of. Now you got to teach them yet another game, right? right? right. right? And, and like, right. like you right. discovered in Jousting, maybe yeah. you've played it a lot and they've played it never. And now they, you know, they have no hope of succeeding because mm -hmm. just because yeah. you've had chances to practice and they haven't. I have, I've, like I say, I've removed that that jousting system from my D and D games, and I just, I just run with standard, you know, D twenty combat with a couple modifiers, and it's easier for the players to interface with me. They have a better feel of what's understanding. I usually do three runs at the joust. Yeah. Sorry, Paul. Um, uh, uh, the um, so I have got, I have gotten away from that. 
Uh, you know, that's and that's not even the only criticism of uh, mini games like that. Um, uh, w- one of them is: Does the mini game um, synchronize with the results that you get in your main game? And mm-hmm. so, probably ha- probably thirty minutes ago, I think John Miller pointed out that one of the problems with that jousting system is it just doesn't take into account fighter level, right? right. The jousting system for chainmail was just like all knights are equivalent, and it's entirely um, it's it's entirely deterministic based on what action you decide to take versus the opponent. Completely doesn't take into account first level versus fifteenth level or changes in strength or magic arm or anything like that. There were attempts to work that in in a, in a Dragon Magazine article, and then and then it becomes just. You wouldn't believe how complicated that is. It's just unbelievably complicated and still, frankly, doesn't actually work right. Still doesn't have the same results that you would get if you just played normal D&D combat. To me, that's a problem. You shift systems and now all of a sudden it's completely different results about who wins. That's that doesn't feel right to me. Likewise, on that same point, um, you're playing D&D and there's a mass combat that happens and you shift a standard chain mail. Uh, totally different results, completely, totally different results, um, up to and including, depending on how you interpret it, your fighter who does pretty well, maybe putting down eight opponents in a round at the best, you shift a chain mail and all of a sudden now they're actually killing 160 people per, per turn. Uh, there are some people that look at that and go, no problem, I don't care, it's a game and there's dragons and who expects anything to be sensible whatsoever. To me, that's a big problem um, that depending on what system the DM decided to use for resolution today, whether it's standard D&D or Chainmail or Frank Menser's uh, War Machine rules, that you get entirely different results. And to me, that, that, that is, that's clearly gonna be something that a player is gonna cr- criticize at some point. Yep, and there there isn't going to be any answer for that. It's just like, well, it's crazy and nonsensical. Deal with it. Right. I mean, this is this is the entire impetus, right, behind your development of Book of War, right? Like, I feel like I've played countless games of D anD D that have tried to bridge the gap between mass combat and and man to man combat. Um, I feel like maybe maybe I've seen it more in like Warhammer games. I remember playing more yep. like Warhammer Fantasy Second Edition, and right. like, well, there's clearly there is a Warhammer mass combat game. These two things right. should just go together, and they the stats have the same names, and like it seems like mm-hmm. this should work. Um, mm-hmm. I can't say that I ever felt like I played a round of that where it felt like accurate. Right. Right. It's hard to do. I mean, there's scaling issues, particularly with uh, with ranged combat that's clearly going to work differently and attempting to just like steal the same mechanic is ultimately not really going to work super well. And it's not and it's not just me saying this. I mean, Gygax himself said that many times in the introduction to Swords and Spells. Mm-hmm. He totally says the same thing of chainmail doesn't support, uh, you know, supernatural dragons and high-level wizards in a mass combat situation that's that's only written for man-to-man combat hmm. in in chainmail so gygax in the introduction to swords and spells says the same thing and he said that's the impetus for swords and spells is here's the first attempt of actually working fantasy creatures into mass combat and so that's so at least he's he's cognizant of that my problem with swords and spells is it's just not fun because the entire thing is run on a calculator there's no dice rolls. You just whip out a calculator and you just calculate average damage from oh, every geez. single encounter. 
and you know you're dealing with enormous numbers on a calculator doing decimal work that's the entire game yeah. so um uh again the pacing's not great i'm gonna i'm probably gonna get flamed for this but the pacing's not great and that's why i was always looking for something other than swords and spells even though we all agree me gygax and everybody else that there's a problem synchronizing D&D with standard chainmail or something. <laughs> so you want to be tasteful, right? If you are going to use some kind of adjunct game or some kind of mini game, uh, I do think that it, it would warrant to be, to be tasteful in what you've selected to make sure that the results aren't entirely divergent from what your world has communicated up until that point. Yeah, yeah. Likewise, I would, I would focus, uh, think very much, you know, practice, practice the... the the side the mini game and specifically practice it with people who've never played it before because you should know what is it like to teach this mechanic and how quickly do people pick it up right like how much of my how much of my how much of my normal D &D session am i sacrificing just to teach good point good point and it's true like in in in, uh you know book of war a 10th level fighter is equivalent to you know has the same hit points probably as 10 first level fighters and therefore appears as one figure, just like Gygax did in Swords and Spells, actually. It's not, you know, it's not highlighted, but yeah, a 10th level fighter, even in Swords and Spells, is gonna go down with the same amount of damage that 10 first level fighters would. So mm-hmm. we agree that that's, that's, that's how the D&D mechanics work. Uh, maybe someone doesn't like that. Maybe somebody wants uh, a 10th level fighter to be able to go through an entire army, but that's not actually how core D&D works. Depending on the edition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So maybe there's so there of course there's a larger story than that. So there's a there's at least a 25, 30 year story about how you know how deadly should your high level fighters be. And as we've said on a couple of shows now, maybe the single biggest difference between early first edition D D and uh, the BX line in the 80s, the basic line, and nowadays is does your high-level fighter kill 200 people per round or not? Hmm. Um, that, that's, that might be the single biggest difference between er- the earliest D&D and what we have later on. And, and a whole lot of bits have been spilled recently on our <laughs> Discord server, Paul. I don't know if you noticed, Paul, but there's been a whole lot of chat partly prompted by me on that exact issue. So if you want uh, more of, uh, if you want to engage more on this really important point, possibly the single biggest difference between editions uh, of D&D, please leave a comment on uh, YouTube here or uh, pick up uh, a patron membership on our Patreon channel at the lowest level. And you can get to our Discord server and engage in that ongoing conversation. Nice, nice pitch. <laughs> uh, let me let Crass me. placement. Yeah. Crass product, I will not stand for it. And if you want to hear me expostulate more, please join our Discord server. Great. So let me let me bring us back because we have just a few minutes left here. Games within games, right? That's that's what we're talking about here. Um, you know, there's there's definitely at, at least two major aspects here that we've sort of diverged into. One is is simply, um, you know, modeling real world things using alternate mechanics. One is, you know, uh, sort of farming elements, you know, either physical elements or mechanical elements from other games and integrating them into your into your role playing game. Sometimes the two go together, sometimes not. So we have a nice grid of possible uh, topics there. Um, any, uh, any, any, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> any, any final thoughts on games within games in general, Dan? 
To me, it's enticing and exciting, and I've always been excited when I see that prospect. I think it's it's, it's dangerous. Yeah. Uh, there are there are pitfalls involved that we've both run into. Maybe me more often than Paul. Of of in in my excitement, getting carried away and actually making a problem in my standard role playing game as a result. So you know, could be domain management, could be mass combat, could be you know some new game like even like a puzzle room like is a puzzle room in a D &D dungeon does that does that count as a new mini game uh you know harold johnson had a game of pelota in in the uh, shrine of tamawakan um and so enticing and exciting but can turn complicated can turn to a whole lot of rules text that your players have to digest like instantly and so i would say be tasteful about it play test it in advance is probably a smart thing to do if you can um, in order to not not uh, fall into those pitfalls that can that can possibly bother your players and possibly disrupt what your world is supposed to look like. Yeah, yeah, and I would I would consider why you know ask yourself why you're bringing this element in, right? Is it mm-hmm. is it because you're trying to model a thing that simply mm-hmm. the game is has yeah. no system for, and you're going to have to make something up yeah. regardless? Yeah, yeah. You know, or are you trying yeah. to be evocative of your setting? You you know, you you have a game yeah. that's set in the Wild West, and you want players to be looking at hands of poker yeah. cards. Um, yeah. You know, what's what's what are you really after? What are you really after mm-hmm. here? And is it is it solving that that problem? And be aware that, like, kind of like Richard Garfield's um, warning about the the tendencies for expert players possibly the very worst reason is i'm personally really great at this game or like (laughs) like i'm a long time player i love this game and i'm great at i'm really great at stratego so i'm going to bring in a game of stratego into my DD game because i just enjoy that but i'm absolutely certain to just just crush my players um if i if i do that that's probably the very worst reason so maybe kind of just Look at observe your motivations for it, and make just stay away from that one. Maybe maybe save it, save your expertise in the uh, chainmail jousting uh, game to to bring with you to Gary Khan to play in their in their weekend long tournament, and maybe maybe you will get to play Luke Gygax. <laughs> yep, that's a, that's that would be a better that would be a better choice than some novice not very observant dms who will go nameless <laughs> it was me <laughs> good good advice good paul's awesome. hall's advice everyone awesome. that's really good advice uh if you have any uh, other experiences of of games within your games of of bringing extra mechanics in or elements from other games that you think worked well or didn't work well uh leave us a note in the comments let us know uh i would love to i would love to read some of that and uh you know i'm sure there are examples that we we didn't think of that uh would be really interesting to think about so leave us a comment agreed agreed and and there might be a couple things that i had on my notes that i actually didn't get to inject that either i or paul didn't inject into this conversation we we overlooked momentarily so if those showed up in the comments that would be actually helpful to us and other people i'm sure uh great conversation today actually remember if you are new to the channel that you can like follow and subscribe to us the wandering dms on a whole bunch of social media sites like Twitter and Facebook and Twitch and YouTube. And we do have the handle wandering DMs, all one word on all of those sites. So please look for us on those sites and subscribe or follow. If you prefer to listen to our show in audio only podcast format, you can do so at our website at wanderingdms.com. Or you can find us on all the major podcast carriers, such as iTunes and Google Podcasts and Spotify. 
If you're listening to us on one of those carriers, please take a moment to rate and review us. That helps other folks find our show. We really do appreciate that, as a matter of fact. And have to give out our weekly thanks to our growing number of patrons uh, that we have at Wandering DMs. Uh, if you have the opportunity and you would like to join them in supporting the show, we could not remotely do all the things we're currently doing without uh, their support. Please do go to patreon.com slash wandering DMs and see our different possible patronage levels. Uh, a bunch of benefits for that. Uh, discounts on merchandise that we have at the Wandering DMs merch site. Uh, um, access to the dedicated Discord server for uh, patrons, which is having more and more conversation all the time on it. And also, I am personally putting a poll up there every month now for what uh, what uh, people would prefer to see on my blog, what issue maybe that we've discussed on Wandering DMs I should dig into more uh, to make our patrons happy. So you could have access to that that monthly poll there couple things coming up this week that people yeah something i, I was going to say also uh, also on the discord gets you access to our post show q and a's both uh for this show usually dan and i pop over to the discord and have a little chat right after the show uh mm -hmm. likewise for our series the big bad which is airing on tuesday nights at 8 p.m eastern um after those shows uh, are over uh, we spend half an hour on the discord usually doing a quick q and a with our patrons so you could come and join us for that as well Definitely. I am really looking forward to this week's episode of The Big Bad on Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Uh, team this week, uh, Madbird Streams. They have a great channel on Twitch. I think they have about five shows a week. Uh, among our most enthusiastic, energetic, mm. um, uh, reactive playgroups uh, on the season. And uh, I personally really enjoyed how they interact with the adversary and how much the adversary truly freaks them out. <laughs> <laughs> so please do watch uh, Tuesday Night at 8 for uh, ep uh, episode 3 of The Big Bad because it's one of our favorite. They're all our favorite episodes, but so is this one. So please yep. watch on Tuesday, and if you're a patron, we'll hang out and we'll do a Q&A afterwards as well. For sure. Other thing, And then the other thing we should look for this week, in addition to the 10 Dead Rats on Thursday, uh, next week, right, we do have uh, the weekly talk show that you're currently experiencing, which is 1 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, our next show is November 11, November 1st. November 1st is next Sunday. Uh, be careful the time change. The daylight savings time here in the U.S. does shift. We will be at officially at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Next week, we have Shannon Applecline. And Shannon Applecline is one of the top-tier D&D historians that we have working today. He's the author of the book Designers and Dragons. It's gone through a couple updates and expansions over the years, actually. He's been updating it for 10 years. He is also the person who wrote all of the historical blurbs on the DMs Guild website and Drive Through RPG for all of the classic TSR Wizards of the Coast uh, role-playing materials. So Shannon is just continually impresses me with his colossal amount of knowledge for designers and game history and everything around D&D and role-playing games from the early days. Uh, he's currently working on a new book, uh, an adjunct to Designers and Dragons called The Lost Histories which I got to see a little a little snippet of that he shared with me. So please join us next week uh, and get your comments and questions in with Shannon Applecline about early D&D and the history of role-playing games and his upcoming uh, new book, The Lost History. So we hope that you'll join us then uh, next Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern time for another thought-provoking discussion. We'll see you then. <laughs>